Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast, Why Is It Important to Prevent Shingles? This is the second in a series of three podcasts titled, Taking Aim Against Shingles, Strategies for Success. It's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. M. Susan Burke. She is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Senior Advisor of Lankanaw Medical Associates at the Lankanaw Medical Center in Wynwood, Pennsylvania. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Now, I'll turn it over to Dr. Burke. Thank you, Lee. In this second podcast on shingles, we'll talk about the various complications that we can see with it. Pain and reduced quality of life, mainly from post-herpetic neuralgia, although the acute pain is quite devastating as well. All shingles complications increase with advancing age, or as I allude to, receding youth is probably uh, our biggest uh, contribution to this problem. Postherpetic neuralgia is an extremely painful condition, and opioids are often used to manage this pain. An important point we should all remember is that preventing postherpetic neuralgia by preventing zoster in the first place by vaccination would obviate the need for opioids and other analgesics. So we'll hear more about uh, how we can prevent zoster in the first place as well as its complications in our third podcast. What are some complications of shingles the clinician should be aware of? Well, the complications include the sequelae of the acute episode of zoster as well as the chronic discomfort lasting three months or more after rash onset, which is referred to as post-herpetic neuralgia. That's the generally accepted definition of that, uh, is three months or longer pain after uh, the acute rash. So the acute sequelae can include skin problems of bacterial superinfection, scarring, and disfigurement, which obviously is really horrific when somebody develops a, a facial distribution zoster in those cranial nerves, especially around the eye. The eye complications additionally can uh, consist of keratitis, iritis, retinitis, and visual impairment. So if you see someone who presents with a beginning rash on their forehead or near their eye, send them immediately 
to an ophthalmologist. This is not something that can be delayed. You really want that patient evaluated as quickly as possible. And if the emergency room is the only option at the off hours, send them to the emergency room so that they can get the proper care for that. There are rare complications of pleuritis or hepatitis. These can actually be quite hard to diagnose, and they might not have much or any associated rash. Or you might see some rash, but you also see some um, pleuritic symptoms or some LFT abnormalities in those patients. Neuropathic complications can occur, such as motor neuropathy, a segmental zoster paresis, occurs in at least three to five patients, three to five percent of patients with cutaneous zoster. And, you know, we might not appreciate that that much because they, you know, if they have it, say, down their arm, they, unless you examine them, they may not want to move too much anyway because they're hurting so much. So you, you might miss that, uh, but it, it is something to look for. Cranial neuritis, meningoencephalitis, and transverse myelitis have also been reported. Again, zoster should be part of our differential, at least, for some of these uh, neurologic conditions. But as I've mentioned before, the most com commonly seen chronic sequelae is postherpetic neuralgia, or PHN. So what exactly is postherpetic neuralgia? So as I mentioned before, postherpetic neuralgia is pain and discomfort associated with herpes zoster that lasts for three or more months after rash onset. The patient can describe this pain in a multitude of ways. Um, it can be a constant, steady, aching, burning pain. Some will say it's shock-like. It lancinating and stabbing. So these are all descriptions that we know as clinicians sound like, well, I really should think about a neuropathic reason for this discomfort. It's not really sounding like a musculoskeletal problem, for example. Uh, the pain may be associated with stimulus abnormalities. So the patient may come in, I've seen patients come in with uh, zoster on their uh, thoracic area, and they're wearing the biggest T-shirt they can find because they cannot stand anything touching up against their skin. This is called allodynia, a condition in which a normal stimulus or touch produces severe discomfort. They're, they're really qu quite miserable with this, and that, you know they'll be at home, they have trouble getting to work because they can't wear their usual work clothes to, um, you know, because of this discomfort. Unfortunately, postherpetic neuralgia can persist for many months or even years. I have a patient in my practice who comes in for the last 10 years, and every time she comes in, the first complaint that she has is her postherpetic neuralgia pain. She has it in the thoracic area, and we try all different medications for her. Every time we do a little um, change in her um, medication cocktail, so to speak, to see whether we can get her pain under better control. 
The impact of postherpetic neuralgia on quality of life then in older adults cannot be overstated. In addition to the increase in doctor visits and cost of meds, there are significant effects on health-related quality of life that can last many months. And, you know, again, in some patients, it's years that they are miserable with this discomfort. The physical discomforts, diminished energy, anorexia, weight loss, physical activity, they don't want to move. They have impaired sleep due to discomfort. There are functional disabilities interfering with their ADLs, their ability to dress, bathe, eat, or walk around. The psychological ones are quite devastating as well. Depression, anxiety, and difficulty concentrating because of the discomfort uh, that they're experiencing. And then they, they have social um, uh, effects as well, decreased uh, ability to go to social gatherings. They don't want to dress up. They just don't feel good about leaving their house. So they have quite a change in their social roles because of this. Are there certain risk factors that increase the chance of developing postherpetic neuralgia? <clears throat> yes. Older age, many more patients in those over the age of 70 report pain for a year compared to younger patients. So again, this receding youth aspect increases your chance of having postherpetic neuralgia. The severity of the acute pain, and that really drives home an important po point. If you see somebody who presents with shingles, you really want to get on top of that acute pain. We're all so concerned about using opioids, et cetera, but you can even use meds that work in the neuropathic pain acutely at the time of acute zoster. And if you need to give opioids for a short term, then I would do it because that severity of acute pain can predict someone who may develop postherpetic neuralgia. How painful the prodrome is before rash onset. You know, the patients who come in and you have no idea what's going on, they present, they've got, got terrible pain, but no rash yet. The, the greater that pain, that's more likely to contribute to the chance of postherpetic neuralgia. So finally, the actual number of lesions can also correlate with postherpetic neuralgia. One study showed that a far greater number of patients reported PHN if they had more than 47 lesions. That must have been quite a study to be counting all those lesions on those patients. But so the, the bigger the rash, the more likely the patient may have postherpetic neuralgia. So I mentioned some of the eye sequelae already. Uh, ophthalmic zoster represents 10 to 25 percent of zoster cases, depending on the series looked at, often with quite dire consequences. In fact, it's not just the eye involvement or the skin around it itself, but a retrospective analysis of patients with herpes zoster ophthalmicus found that stroke developed in over 8% of these patients. That's over four times higher risk of stroke than in a matched comparison. Taking antivirals didn't affect this risk either. 
Another study showed that herpes zoster anywhere was associated with a significantly increased risk of both cerebrovascular as well as cardiac events. Another unusual complication of herpes zoster is an acute peripheral facial neuropathy called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome or herpes zoster oticus. In addition to seeing vesicles near the ear, this can be associated with facial paralysis, ear pain, tinnitus, and hearing loss. So how do you treat someone who presents to your office with shingles? Well, there are three main strategies um, for treatment. First, you want to limit viral replication. Then you want to limit inflammation, and we really need to be aggressive in limiting the pain. With regard to antivirals, they're the ones that limit viral replication. Ideally, antivirals should be started within 72 hours for maximum effectiveness. Delay in administering this permits neuronal destruction. So you may want to train your office staff, for example, if somebody calls in and says, well, I developed this rash, it's painful, make sure that they know to fit that patient in that day so that you can see the rash and prescribe those antivirals in a timely fashion. It's not, it's not a rash that you want to wait three or four days to evaluate because by that time you've missed the ideal window of opportunity to treat with an antiviral. Unfortunately, less than half of patients receive antivirals within the indicated 72 hours. Now, if I see somebody who presents and it's been four days, but they're still developing active lesions, I will definitely give them an antiviral. They have limited effectiveness though. They reduce lesion formation and time to crusting by only a few days. And unfortunately, they do not reliably prevent post-herpetic neuralgia. So the second aspect of care of an acute zoster episode is to limit inflammation. Steroids can be used, and there are some studies uh, that show their benefit, but we know that they are associated with several side effects, especially in the older population, and you're going to get uh, elevated blood glucoses, for example. So they're actually generally only recommended for herpes zoster ophthalmicus or Ramsey Hunt. So I do not use steroids in someone who presents with a non-facial kind of herpes zoster. But we do want to limit pain. And this has proven difficult in both the acute as well as the chronic PHN setting. Herpes zoster-related pain is often resistant to treatment, and I, again, I think we need to look at this as a neuropathic pain, and that should help with, ha with our approach to the patient because an NSAID isn't going to do too much. Acetaminophen isn't going to do too much. We know that healthcare utilization due to herpes zoster increases with age. So what can we use? If those have only very modest effects, we can use opioids. About a third of patients or more with post-herpetic neuralgia require opiates because of the severity of their pain. But in the elderly, again, this has problems. Opiates may contribute to loss of balance, which can result in falls, and 
patients and families as well as clinicians are all reluctant to use this class of meds now. We can use antidepressants, and they do have neuropathic improving effects. So uh, I, I would encourage the use of that. Again, you've got to be careful in the elderly. Uh, some of the early um, tricyclics, for example, might be more associated with orthostasis, so you've got to be careful of which one you're picking. Neuroleptics, often too little too late but they can be started at the same time as the rash to reduce neuropathic pain. So I will get them on an agent like gabapentin when I see them with the acute rash and uh, hope that that will start to modulate their nerve pain, which is what herpes zoster is. Down the line, pain management referrals may be needed. Sometimes patients require injections and nerve blocks, and these can be offered as well, but not in the acute setting. I think more in the chronic setting if you can't manage that post-herpetic neuralgia pain adequately with neuroleptics and antidepressants. The difficulty in managing pain at times reinforces the importance of trying to prevent shingles from happening in the first place, which is why we're really discussing this topic today. So to summarize, postherpetic neuralgia is a most common painful complication of zoster, and this can profoundly affect older patients. Strategies to prevent zoster occurrence will help reduce disease burden. If you don't develop shingles, you won't have PHN. We can achieve a tremendous reduction in the incidence of zoster and subsequent postherpetic neuralgia by immunizing our adult patients who are 50 and older against shingles, and we'll hear more about this in the next podcast. This has been an exciting discussion, and we are delighted that you have participated. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primemed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primemed.com for claiming CME credit. Please join us next time for the third installment of this podcast series, What is the Difference Between the Two Shingles Vaccines? And be sure to check out the first installment in this series, Who is at Risk for Shingles and Why, on www.primed.com. We thank you again for joining Primed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.